Good evening. Welcome to another edition of The World Tonight. I'm Peter Cavodi, joined with Adam Lawless. Uh, and tonight we have a very loaded uh, schedule, so we'll get right to it. And we are discussing the very historic, groundbreaking New Zealand election. Jacinda Ardern defined expectations and did win a majority when some polling was suggesting she was going to fall short. And she has rewritten the landscape of New Zealand's politics. Meanwhile, the Nationals suffered their worst defeat since 2002, and the coalition partners, New Zealand First, of the current government were wiped out. And the other two minor parties, uh, ACT and the Greens, also had great nights. Let Adam explain a little more in detail the, the final results. Yep, so as Peter said, this is definitely a historic election, primarily because the Labour Party were able to grant themselves an overall majority um, uh, of 64 seats with 49.15% uh, of the vote. This is the first time ever of a majority government since the adoption of mixed member proportional in 1996. Now, looking at the other parties, as um, Peter just said, National uh, received their second worst ever result. Um, and looking a bit more at the other best results, um, the classical liberal sort of libertarian act party received their best ever results of uh, 10 seats. The uh, second best for them was nine seats. Uh, they came third with 7.98% uh, of the vote. And some other historic uh, parts of this election is the Green Party were able to win their first ever electorate uh, since 1999. Um, and another uh, important note is the Maori Party re-entered Parliament via a Maori elect electorate, and this is their uh, first seat uh, since they lost all of their seats in 2017. So broadly, this is a uh, this is a very important election for New Zealand because it allows um, really Jacinda Ardern to determine what sort of government she wants to be running here. Um, we're seeing sort of conflicting ideas of what she's going to go for. There are some ideas she'll go for a sort of third way social democratic approach, um, a more centrist approach, if you will, uh, to try and sustain national uh, party voters who are a bit more centre right um, and keep them within her electoral coalition for the next election um, in three years time. However, uh, she's, there are also talks that they'll try and include uh, the Green Party within some form of coalition, um, despite having a majority, to try and appeal to their more left-wing voters. So there are definitely conflicting ideas of what this uh, government is actually going to stand for. But the real key thing to look at is that the opposition is quite divided between a sort of progressive left and a centre-right to classical liberal. Um, so she's sort of, well will have the power for the next three years pretty much uncontested. Yes, and I think that's a fair point. Also should be noted with that Maori pickup that it was the only seat the Labour Party lost on a very historic night. So there's always that dubious, uh, you know, distinction for the Labour MP who lost it, but returned on the list. Uh, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the opposition. It will now be interesting to see um, what happens with Judith Collins. Uh, she's scheduled. Uh, to meet with her caucus next week about, you know, retention. It's expected she should be returned uh, to the leadership of the National Party, but it will be interesting to see uh, in the next few years whether she's challenged potentially internally again, uh, because the National seems to have, you know, embraced the uh, Australian liberal strategy of uh, the evolving door with leadership. Um, uh, just unfortunately for them, they just don't win elections. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see in her case. I mean, two names who have been rumored, uh, obviously, though, both have the have said that they have no interest in the job are um, Christopher Luxton, who is a former CEO of, uh, of a New Zealand Air, who is, at times been con con has been compared to John Key, the very successful national leader uh, of the last you know 15 years, uh, and her deputy, Paul uh, Goldsmith, who is the number two, but both have said they have no intention of challenging her at the current moment. But it will be interesting to see how she works as an opposition and also how uh, the other opposition parties work. Yeah, I think the key thing to see here with um, Collins is specifically how she frames her type of opposition. I see parallels in Keir Starmer here, um, where you have a figure with a, a government with a substantial majority and has to try and play themselves as the responsible character, trying to, up, you know, defend certain interests and ensure that um, uh, the government doesn't stray too far from certain elements. 
Um, and I think that's definitely how they carry themselves forward. Uh, and a, another interesting element to look towards is how the left-wing progressive parties are able to oppose the government in their own sense. So as I was talking about um, previously, there are rumors of the Green Party um, you know, possibly being included in this government. However, there is also this element that they could form their own opposition, uh, possibly with the Maori Party, to try and ensure that their um, legislative agenda is carried through um, and possibly is able to, to be promoted for the next election in three years, um, specifically around a wealth tax, which is something that um, Labour has rejected um, or Labour leadership has rejected and the Greens have embraced. So that will definitely be an element there where the Green Party could form its own sort of um, unofficial opposition uh, to try and court those uh, progressive voters away from Labour. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it will be interesting to see, of course, uh, you know, how the Greens approach that. Uh, do they are they more aggressive towards the government? Do they play the, we support certain elements of government, but don't support this? It's going to be very interesting also with the economic recovery aspect with COVID due to the uh, tourism industry of New Zealand pretty much being decimated. Uh, and I think also the other interesting thing will be, uh, you know, if for other the other uh, two opposition parties, Mari, you said, you know, where would they align their interests with? And the ACT really, you know, has if there's any opposition party that has the most to possibly lose, the next three years, it might be them. Uh, they had a good performance under David Seymour, uh, gaining nine seats. But there's a, an argument to be made that the Nationals very much will be going for their heads to win back many of the voters they lost in the last election, both centrist and right-wing voters. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and the other element to look towards is how national... Um, kind, I mean, we have to look at uh, New Zealand first, failing uh, to pa not only pass electoral threshold, as I said, they only got 2.67% of the vote. Um, but if they're able to claw back um, in the next three years, especially because that sort of seems to be the cycle that they go through, um, this element of going into government, failing to sustain themselves afterwards and going back in, uh, sort of like a revolving door. But um, who knows if that will actually be able to carry itself forward um, and sustain itself, uh, and also where those voters may be going if they don't decide to back New Zealand first next time. Because um, you could argue that a lot of, um, or some element of act support is coming from uh, New Zealand first because of their more uh, right-wing social rhetoric. Um, but yeah, that's definitely uh, something that Axe Party is going to have to watch out for in the future. They're the ones that I look, if I was looking at overall, who's the most vulnerable in the next election, I'd say that is definitely Act, um, just because of how fractured their coalition could become. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very, you know, spot analysis. And I think the other thing will be interesting is Adair now has her majority, but the system, mixed member proportional votation, um, is very hard, you know, to keep that majority, you know, yeah. at the next election. So it's, you know, they have to make the, probably the best that they can use with this system. And uh, as mentioned, they're going to have a lot of challenges ahead of themselves, you know, in the next three years. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the final note, I'd probably leave this on, um, or at least for me, um, is that, as you said, Labour is definitely, it feels like this isn't going to be something that's sustainable for them, especially because of how unique the circumstances have been to actually promote Labour into this government. So they definitely have to do some unique um, form of economic, I mean, just looking at what the problems they face now, um, the economic response is going to be one of the key things there. So if they're not able to adequately perform with that, or the opposition is able to spin it in a way that's effectively um, you know, undermining them, uh, it's definitely uh, going to be something that they're, they're going to have to try and handle with. Uh, but that's all I have to say on the matter. And my final point on the topic, I mainly hit the same point as Adam. I think the other thing they keep note is I think Jacinda Ardern is a very talented politician. She's, you know, got the power very much in a, you know, surprise, you know, pulling it up, you know, a comeback win in 2017. And this time she won on the heels of a very popular response to COVID. But uh, it should be noted that, you know, for all, her, you know, the popularity of her, she has made mistakes and at times, you know, gotten away with it uh, because of the good things, you know, handling of Christchurch and this. So it'll be interesting to see, and we see this historically with a lot of politicians who run on, you know, good management and luck. When does it finally break? If it does, yeah. for it, you know, well, 
Well, go ahead. I would say, yeah, uh, well, it could definitely break because yeah. we saw with the Christchurch response that that um, the polling being in her favor was definitely uh, something that dragged down um, later on. It was really the COVID crisis and that effective response is what was able to boost them back up. So, um, yeah, exactly what you say. Who knows if this is going to be something that they can they can keep up. Yeah, I think we've hit the topic enough, and I'll let you uh, lead off on our next topic again. Right, yes. So another election, this time going all the way to uh, South America with Bolivia. So this is a country that has been taken by turmoil and internal violence uh, ever since um, Evo Morales was um, essentially, well, either overthrown in some interpretations or taken um, by popular uh, movements. Uh, but essentially, um, his successor, uh, his chosen successor, um, Louis Arce, um, has been elected with a pretty decisive majority, um, beating his nearest rival by about 20 points or so, therefore avoiding a, um, a second round runoff. Um, he has taken the presidential election, as well as the fact that his party has also retained majorities in both houses of the Bolivian legislature. So uh, there's definitely a revitalized uh, socialist movement uh, within uh, Bolivia that has definitely seemed to be have been uh, suppressed during uh, this time period of Morales being um, taken down and uh, where we are now. Uh, just a final interesting uh, thing before I pass it over to Peter to um, talk about some comments, is how off the polls were with this uh, particular election. Um, I'd say comfortably most polls predicted that um, they would be in the range of 10% a second round would likely come off and Arce would um, could possibly have avoided a second round, but he was about the 40%. Or in fact, um, most recent totals, I think, um, let me just check quickly. Uh, last time I checked, it hadn't been fully counted yet, but... Um, no, the current polling, uh, just to count... You yeah, so have, he, yeah. oh, sorry, I was saying... Oh, sorry, I'll let you go. Apologies. Yeah, so he's on 55.1%, um, uh, with his closest... Um, rival Carlos Mesa at 28.8%. So polling got this entirely off, uh, which is fascinating to see from, from that perspective. But yes, I'll pass it over to Peter to, to talk about some comments on this. Yeah, and I was just going to mention the polling as well. You know, the polling had this race being much closer than it was. And uh, for Bolivia's left, this is a very, very big, you know, win, especially with, the, you know, what happened with Evo Morales. Uh, depending who you ask, it was a coup, liberation, freedom, etc. Again, folks, that's for your interpretation. We are not getting into that because uh, we don't want nasty comments coming our way from whatever sphere of the world this may be. But yeah, I think it's interesting. And in, you know, Arce's case, you know, he was, you know, a protege of uh, Morales. You know, was minister for the economy and public finance. So it'll be interesting to see uh, the influence that a lot of uh, Morales's ideas will have on this new government that now will face, as we mentioned, ironically, with New Zealand. Uh, economic problems with COVID. Um, the response in Bolivia with COVID has been seen as a disaster. Uh, that the current government, ha uh, that uh, uh, Janine Anes, uh, has been seen as uh, weak on the issue and uh, failing to um, materialize. So it will be interesting um, to see what happens, uh, especially now with um, the, you know, the movement for socialism and political mind, uh, political instrument for the sovereignty of People's Party having the majority of uh, all the uh, chambers of parliament uh, and the presidency, um, what they, you know, do now to revitalize. And it also is interesting to see the Latin American, uh, you know, left, it, it seems, you know, slowly making a revival. You know, we've seen in Argentina, uh, the left came back and beat, you know, a very pro-business uh, president. We've now seen this in Bolivia return to the left, and we may very well see in other Latin American countries in the next few years, uh, the left possibly making a, a return. And a, a one to look out for would be Colombia, possibly having its first uh, leader from the left ever. So it's an interesting phenomenon to possibly see the resurgence of a left of a leftist slash, you know, left of center, mostly left wing uh, policy, politics uh, reviving itself in Latin America. Yeah, I, this is particularly important for a car, um, candidate like I'll say, primarily because um, a lot of his, um, I guess, credentials come from his time as finance minister, where poverty saw drastic reductions, the economy saw great growth, um, and ultimately people felt like their lives were ultimately better. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the, the main issues that I've seen raised uh, with the Morales government is less the economic um, 
policies and so forth, which is sort of what he is pushing forward. So obviously there's the good there. But the Morass government would criticize for its authoritarianism. Um, and that is the key element that he can sort of push aside. And who knows if that's the sort of type of thing he'll embrace. Uh, we have no real idea um, at this stage because um, it was definitely a Morales-led um, endeavor to see himself, um, you know, basically force through um, this, un well, this ability to expand how many terms he could possibly serve yeah. uh, mm -hmm. by um, pushing through his own judges in courts and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the key thing here is definitely, yes, the economy, which um, the credentials are apparent and obviously voters see that and have voted for that. Um, but also the, the COVID-19 uh, response, which is, uh, as uh, Peter was saying, it's been effectively awful. Um, the last time I checked, Bolivia had the third highest um, deaths per capita, uh, which is devastating to see for such a poor, you know small country that is quite poor as well. Um, so the actual ability to respond to that is going to have been is going to be a lot more difficult uh, than other countries. Uh, but yes, as um, I was saying before, it's just been fascinating to see how incorrect the polls were in this situation, um, especially because a lot of them saw that a possible runoff could have seen um, uh, Carlos Mesa possibly winning. So yes, uh, fascinating to see what went wrong there. Um, but. I think Bolivia is definitely going to be an interesting to one to, to look towards, um, primarily to see if um, the economic response does work and see mm -hmm. how that benefits other left-wing movements within uh, the region, but also how um, their if this authoritarianism will rise once again. Um, and I mean, I'm not, you know I'm not going to beat around the bus through this and say that the um, the more right wing government of Anes was any better because ultimately they still engaged in suppressive tactics um, mm. and um, uh, calling off election um, and delaying it as as much as possible. Um, but it's something that obviously you you have to hope that people aren't subjected to um, this kind of thing in the future. But yes, that's um, the main takeaway from this, and it's definitely it was definitely interesting to watch. Um, it's, it's very little of it is actually covered on the media, at least of what I've seen so far in terms of the results itself. So if people want a good source for just Latin American politics in general, America elects um, is a fantastic one. Um, so definitely follow them. They look at just, I mean, not to plug them or anything, cause, um, but they look at, you know, uh, polling within Brazil in terms of like city elections and so forth. So if you're really hyper into that kind of thing, that's a great source to go towards. Um, and they were great for the results as well. Friends of Elections Daily, of course. Uh, but yeah, I think your points are absolutely correct. I think the interesting team as well. Uh, we, you know, what role does Avril Morales play in this new government uh, since he still looms large? Uh, you know, there have been accusations that, you know, this is going to be a figurehead government mostly led by him. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if, um, I say, you know, puts a distance between Morales and say, I'm my own government, or there is some, you know, connection to go back to, you know, his government. Obviously, you know, economically, you know, Mor I, you know Morales, you know, it led Bolivia in a very economically successful way. Of course, the criticism was the authoritarianism uh, and interference with judiciary. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if that returns, as you mentioned, or uh, whether this is a new path forward for Bolivia, which has been decimated, you know, with its poor communities, indigenous and native Bolivians as well, you know, being hit hard by the COVID uh, pandemic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yes, on that note, uh, we will move to the third topic, and this is you know news from today. And I'm just going to push this one a little up. He's the historic uh, Israel and Sudan announcement made uh, today at the White House. Adam uh, can explain a little more what this means. So yes, um, this comes as the third country to normalize relations with Israel, um, members of the Arab League that have normalized. Um, obviously, the first was the UAE, and I believe Bahrain was the second. Um, and yes, this is a particularly interesting one for a number of reasons, but I'll just give a broad overview of what uh, normalization of ties actually means. Um, so in this specific context, it, uh, they hope to expand economic and trade relations with an initial focus on agriculture. Um, so in the future, delegations between the two countries are set to meet to discuss issues about farming, uh, about technology, about migration, that kind of thing. Um, but also uh, the real interesting part about this is the allegations that, um, well, I say allegations, th this idea that this um, 
this actual, I guess, normalization of ties is coming with the fact that the US is changing Sudan's designation um, as a state, uh, state sponsor of terror or terrorism. Um, so initially, uh, the reason why that I, I labeled it as an allegation is because the US government has liked to see this as a separate thing, uh, as completely unrelated to um, the actual normalization of ties. Um, however, the Sudanese government or the transitional government has made it clear that this was a requirement for them to, to actually normalize ties um, with Israel in the first place. So that's an interesting element to look at. And then finally, uh, the Palestinian reaction, just with the other two, um, normalization of ties, that has not been good. Uh, Palestinian leaders have reacted by calling this a serious stab in the back of Palestinian and Sudanese people. Um, and this being the fact that uh, the Arab League uh, essentially said um, initially that there should be no cooperation with Israel into, until there is a Palestinian state established. Now, obviously there isn't a Palestinian state and Palestine feels quite betrayed by the fact that they're being circumvented in this element. Uh, but yes, that is my overall comments on the, um, the overall agreement. Yes, um, on my view, uh, full disclosure, I do sort of take the pro-Israel lane here. So uh, anyone who alleges bias, I already said it firsthand for you. Um, <laughs> I think this is a monumental deal, um, especially with what has happened in the, you know, the span of Israel not having a lot of recognition in the region to now. UAE, Iran, now Sudan, um, and obviously the rumored more countries that are on the way. And I think it really, as mentioned here, and this is not to become a repeat cliche, is a changing wind of the region. Um, the Middle <laughs> East um, is changing. Um, the Palestinian cause is being pushed aside. And bluntly, it's because in the eyes of many Arabs, it's not the important thing anymore. The more important thing is Obviously not in the case of Sudan. Sudan, as mentioned by Adam, is a different little ball game. But in the case of you know many of these Arab Gulf states, um, it's Iran, the threat of Iran, and they see Israel as a partner, um, militarily and economically, uh, that can support them against Iran. Uh, is why they think this is the time for normalization. Now, in the case of Sudan. Um, you know, Sudan has had a very massive change in the last year, especially uh, with the longtime head of the of the country's regime being thrown up by the military and the military claiming, of course, of course, you have to take this in, in the African continent with a lot of pause. Uh, you know, the transition to democracy is on the way. Of course, we take that with heavy skepticism here on this broadcast. But, yes. Uh, uh, it is a change. Obviously, their big, you know, win for Sudan is that they are off the U.S. terrorism list, uh, state sponsors of terrorism list, which means they can now be opened up economically to U.S. goods, which will, you know, help their economy desperately. And also now with Israel, they'll be opened up to um, the Israeli market, and that will allow a lot more commerce to come in. So, on the Sudan perspective, this may not be more. This might be more economic than actual ethics itself. Uh, to open up its market space because now we'll have um, the U.S. and Israel's market space and uh, probably now also probably acquiring some Israeli technology, which a lot of countries are very intrigued and interested in getting as well. And for the Palestinians, you know, the new this seems to be the new normal now of uh, backstabbing and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, betrayal. I think this is the you new, know, I think the copy and paste now. I think of every new Palestinian statement every week now uh, with uh, their former allies. Um, I, don't, I, I, I see that the uh, the uh, writing department there and PR are having a fun time. But um, it really just shows, I think, and this isn't, and I, and I, can, I can understand that, you know, the Palestinian cause is, you know, in, in their minds that have been betrayed, but really shows that, uh, they really haven't adjusted to the new new normal of this world. Yes, 2020s had a lot of new things, but it genuinely looks like um, the Palestinians are really behind on this new ball game, and that it really they're the ones suffering for not understanding. You know that the world basically has looked the other way now. Yeah, and really, what this does is only push them closer to Iran, um, which is the other element to look at, and we're possibly seeing a more militaristic um, Palestine mm -hmm. who recognizes that a two-state solution isn't really uh, coming anytime soon. Um, the real, another interesting note, um, just to quickly add, is that this isn't, um, you know, this, this normalization of ties, this historic shift, um, isn't supporting um, Benjamin Netanyahu domestically. Ultimately, he's still seeing his um, uh, polling shows, his um, seat count 
um, hovering at about 30 to, I mean, 27, 26 to 30, um, with his, the right wing Settlers' Party, uh, Yamuna, uh, mm -hmm. outflanking him from the right, being as close as 24 seats um, to his 27. So, just domestically here, um, this, you know, extensive um, diplomatic shift in the region really isn't helping him out domestically because of the COVID-19 response. Um, and, it, you know, interestingly, you could see a parallel here with Donald Trump and his own situation with the presidential mm -hmm. election. You know, these are historic negotiations that his administration um, has uh, negotiated, uh, but ultimately, domestically, it doesn't seem like people care there either. Um, because of more pressing issues, obviously. But um, no, definitely interesting internationally um, to see where this is going to go, especially because it seems like domestically for Palestine or the mm. Palestinian administered regions, um, there isn't, uh, this is going to see a significant shift and to be towards more militaristic. Um, and then finally, um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be helping uh, their own domestic situation. But I think that's um, the main highlights from this. Yeah. I'll just wrap up my final thoughts, then we'll move on to Libya. Uh, I just, I think that's fair analysis. I also think with Bibi and Yahoo, one of the interesting snippets uh, today was a uh, President Trump, you know, tried, I think, uh, tried to get Bibi on the spot to say that uh, Joe Biden, who, if the polls are correct, again, if the polls are correct, would become president-elect, would not have negotiated this. And a very interesting soundbite from Netanyahu was, "We'll be happy to take anything from any American leader." which really tells me that Netanyahu is really getting ready, unlike, I think, is trying to, in a sense, unlike maybe his boss, Barack Obama, when he was vice president, to have a warmer relationship with, as I said, Joe Biden administration, yeah. which is really telling to see that. This, and, uh, yeah. oh. and it's particularly fascinating because one of the striking moments from the um, Israeli elections is a, a massive poster or massive billboard, I guess, of uh, Bibi and uh, Trump shaking hands and that being uh, um, a bit of an election uh, spin for uh, Likud. But um, definitely seems like that type of strategy is shifting significantly. I mean, he named a settlement in the Golan Heights um, after Trump. Donald Trump. So yeah, it, it's, it's these fascinating elements that he's now recognizing that uh, for Israel to sustain itself, specifically at a diplomatic time where it seems like a two-state solution has been thrown out the window. So um, internationally, their situation is going to be so um, tense, really. Um, but obviously, they now have backing of, of new Arab allies. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, ultimately, um, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how, um, how a Biden administration um, handles someone like Netanyahu, especially as they're in such a precarious situation. And with the possibility of a, a Prime Minister Bennett um, in the that was future, my next point. Um, <laughs> Prime Minister uh, Bennett is an impossible thing now. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bennett being the the leader mm -hmm. of uh, Yamuna, for those yeah. who do not know. And um, yeah, oh yeah, sorry, I'll let you go. And then, but, I'll... yeah, yeah, um, but mm -hmm. he he would take a, a, a way more hard line right. on the issue of Palestine. Uh, they believe that um, the construction of settlements uh, should be legal and would pursue that openly. Um, a lot of their voters are concentrated in um, those regions especially in the West Bank. Um, but uh, to see how they would be able to play the world uh, diplomatically, um, this, you know, because of this precarious situation they've, they've negotiated themselves into would uh, be very interesting. But I'd love to hear the fun fact, uh, Peter. Well, no, I was going to mention with Bennett that he actually uh, would, if he were to become uh, Prime Minister of Israel, would become the uh, first ever uh, Israeli uh, American or I should say American Israeli, whatever way you want to say it, of becoming PM uh, in that case, and uh, that is very true. Yeah, because he, but he is an American citizen. But yeah, I think you know the point made is if Bennett were to become PM, and it's possible, uh, he and Netanyahu, of course, have had very strained relations in the last few years, especially at the last uh, negotiations over uh, coalition arrangements. Uh, Bennett, of course, would take a harder line uh, on the Palestinian issue. Uh, as noted by Adam, his party is he very much doesn't believe in the Palestinian issue at all, and basically views that as land for Israel developers to make some nice settlements. Yeah, that's exactly uh, it. But no, it'll be uh, interesting to see, and uh, interesting to see how the region uh, changes. And I mean, no one could have guessed a few years ago that uh, in the now uh, an Israeli, you know, flag and you know a UAE flag will be seeing each other at nice little conferences now. So you know, that's you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the world at a hand. But anyway, moving on to, you know, other news in the Middle East slash that 
part of the world. Uh, so news out of Libya today with a ceasefire, and Adam can explain this developing story. Yes, uh, so um, mm -hmm. it, Libya's warring side, uh, sides, that being um, the government of the internationally recognized government of national accord um, and that of the military commander um, Khalifa Haftar and his Libyan national army have signed a permanent ceasefire across the country um, and this is coming from the UN uh, Libya mission. Uh, so there are some very important takeaways uh, from this uh, ceasefire agreement which includes some other elements. Um, Obviously, the main one being this ceasefire affecting the entirety of the country, uh, but the other elements being that it includes the removal of all mercenaries and foreign fighters within three months, um, which is particularly interesting to note because um, the Libyan National Army is supported by Russian mercenaries and the government of national courts is backed by um, Syrian foreign fighters sent over by Turkey. So um, foreign fighters and mercenaries are a key element of the actual on the ground situation. So to have them a part of it is quite significant. Furthermore, it will see the return of internal flights and road transport. Um, they are hoping to negotiate a joint budget, taking uh, both sides from the government of National Accord and Libyan National Army to work out a situation economically within the country. Uh, there are going to be further political talks next month in Tunisia, as well as planned elections in 2021. Now, the talks in Tunisia are expected to announce the leaders of an interim unity government, as well as more concrete plans for elections. Um, and I think the, the, the key note to look here is that this really just reflects the situation on the ground. Um, so just to, you know, summarize a very complex um, bit of uh, a civil war right now. Uh, but the Libyan National Army has sort of been forced into a stalemate very recently after um, the Turkish intervention in favour of the government national accord sort of threw it towards the GNA's uh, favour, as well as the fact they failed to seize Tripoli, which is the capital city of Libya. Um, so those elements definitely mean that the situation is a stalemate on the ground. So key stakeholders have to actually go to the negotiation table. And this is sort of being reflected by uh, this ceasefire. Uh, the final things I'll add on this little brief introduction um, is that uh, Russia is refusing to remove its mercenaries and Turkey refuses to remove its Syrian foreign fighters. So the allies of these two warring sides are definitely going to have an issue as they have to um, try and talk to their allies and to negotiate a means to get them to remove um, mm. their, their fighters. Um, and finally, I think it should be noted that there have been ceasefires like this before, so some skepticism is, um, is has been seen um, by some experts in the in the area. Um, but it will definitely be concentrated on these uh, political talks next month in Tunisia because they'll really determine the f uh, the future of the country and who gets to hold power, that kind of thing, which is what is the real um, element that's going to be the issue here. Yeah, I think those are excellent points. I think, you know, uh, the, you know, militarily, the two sides really didn't have anything left um, to push for. I mean, the failure to capture Tripoli um, by, um, oh my, I'm forgetting uh, which side again. Oh my. Uh, oh, sorry, say again. Uh, the, the, the side that failed to capture uh, Tripoli. I apologize. Uh, that's the Libyan National Army. The Libyan, thank you. The Libyan National Army. Long day at, at school. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, not getting that was a big blow to them. And, you know, for the national government of Accords, uh, holding on to that was a monumental victory. And, uh, you know, this ceasefire, of course, is fragile, as mentioned, because of Turkey and Russia. But it is very good for the region to see that this hopefully, of course, hopefully, um, this, you know, was put to hopefully to rest. And that Libya, for the first time in a long time, can have a normal return normalcy, obviously, uh, Libya has not been in a very normal state since the 2011 uh, Libyan revolution, which overthrew Muammar Gaddafi. Um, and since what happened then with the instability of numerous governments uh, and the breaking up of the country uh, will be interesting to see. And it also will be quite fascinating to see uh, what compromises are made to the different factions when inevitably the government formation is made up uh, officially. Yeah, I mean, um, a significant element to look at is that the military commander who sort of went rogue and established this Libyan National Army, um, Haftar, has sort of been sidelined by his own um, set of government in the east. Mm -hmm. um, he's seen his own significant um, 
inability to sort of hold power as effectively. So I'm my own speculation would be that um, other uh, key interests within that government is hoping to play themselves more favor favorably uh, to the internationally recognized uh, government of national accord to try and gain some form of um, established power. Um, it will be interesting to see what type of element they have as the head of the government, whether they'll try and um, establish a sort of dual system um, or if they'll go for a single leader. But obviously these are going to be very tense negotiations um, and I imagine it will be definitely a few months before we hear anything concrete uh, but continue to listen to um, the world tonight yes, to find that out in the future. Yeah, indeed. And one uh, last point on Libya, and I'm sorry for cutting you off, uh, is that they actually resumed oil production earlier this week, selling it off internationally and domestically. So maybe that's yeah. also another good sign as well. Yep, that is exactly right, especially because it will allow a steady stream of economic uh, income to come to the country to hopefully um, actually bring about some form of re uh, rebuilding efforts, because that is going to be key, um, especially for infrastructure between the two sides. Um, but I think I'm just going to leave it there and then pass on to another uh, key bit of internal instability for a African country. And we're going to the police brutality protests in Nigeria. Um, just, yeah, I'll just let Peter give the um, overview of this. Yeah, so uh, earlier this week, um, there were demonstrations in Nigeria, in the uh, in the city of Lagos, which were, uh, you know, waving Nigerian flags, protesting the government, uh, recent, you know, actions. Um, and a secret group of police uh, called um, SARS, I believe, if I, the, which is the special anti-robbery squad, uh, decided to open fire. Uh, this has caused numerous deaths, multiple injuries uh, on a peaceful protest. There was no violence at all. And uh, the country, of course, has been plunged into chaos because of this. And the city itself uh, has been put on, was put on 24-hour curfew. And uh, it's alleged that uh, the government was also blocking ambulances from, uh, to reach the site of where the victims were killed or wounded in this uh, assault. It should be noted, of course, that Nigeria has had problems, not just recently, but historically, with... Oh, oh. Yes. <laughs> uh, <oops>. uh, with... <laughs> it's all good there. <laughs> I didn't realize, uh, you know, uh, Borat's not you know, advertising on the world tonight. Uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, that's a foreshadowing for the loser of the week, we, but anyway. Back to um, Nigeria. But yes, Nigeria has had issues with uh, use of, of uh, overuse of force, and especially with this unit, um, particularly having been controversially used for torture, tortures, torturing and killings in the past as well. Yeah. Just to, yeah, so you did a great job there of just overlooking at the scene at the moment. Um, but just to look at a bit of the, the history of the protests. So these protests began on the 7th of October, um, primarily with young people demanding the scrapping of this mentioned special anti-robbery squad. Um, they are, they have been sort of a key element of protesters in the past in Nigeria, primarily because they've been accused with evidence being quite plentiful of attacking and killing people extrajudicially extrajudicially, um, as well as other elements of um, allegations of torture and so forth. Um, now, the unit was dissolved days later after the protests, uh, but they have continued on demanding reform. Uh, protesters have demanded general reform to the Nigerian government to make it more democratic, less corrupt, that kind of thing. Um, now, the real interesting thing to see here is that the, um, the special anti-robbery squad has been replaced by uh, a new uh, special weapons and tactical unit um, instead. Uh, and many protesters in the country believe this is merely a uniform change that won't really fix the systemic issues. And I would add that it's very interesting uh, to read accounts of those who live in um, Nigeria uh, to see why um, th th these systemic issues are coming about. So one of the, the key things I saw is that they have very archaic views towards young people specifically. So take, for example, um, the reason, so they have in the past shot young people who have um, had you know expensive watches have had laptops have had expensive cars but don't look the the part of one who has that much money um, and the the allegations there is that they 
are in this archaic view of seeing wealth as being, you know, it has a particular look rather than in the, you know, the 21st century of, of being quite indistinguishable, really, um, especially because of how cheap these products have become and so forth. Um, but yes, that has been an interesting element to look at and primarily why it's young people who are at the center of this, because they're the ones really bringing about this cultural change in Nigeria and the police's inability to really um, respond to it um, has has definitely caused a lot of resentment. Um, and the, the further um, escalation of shootings by security forces, which have killed at least 12 in um, Nigeria uh, definitely continues this element of people wanting to see reform to the police um, because of its uh, corruption. Um, some have stated that the only real way to actually fix a system like this is to either, you know, replace the people who are currently um, in it and serving as all, you know, have been in it for years and years, uh, who don't understand that uh, culture and uh, the times are changing. Um, also, some others want to see them have, um, you know, uh, some form of psychological test to try and reaffirm the very nature of modern Nigeria. Uh, but definitely a very, very interesting um, look at um, police brutality um, in a non-Western country, because it's never really something that I've seen cropped up, or at least in the international media. Of course, you see um, very reasonable protests cropping up in the, re uh, the Western world, um, and they have their own issues that raise for different reasons. Um, but this specific one of it being linked to um, youth culture and identity in that element has been quite fascinating to read about. So I definitely recommend if people aren't exactly aware of the situation or may have seen it on a very snip, small snippets of it on say Twitter or Instagram to definitely read a lot more into it um, because it is a situation that is currently developing and is um, gives a fascinating insight into a country that um, not many pay attention to. Yeah, I think, you know, well, very well spoken. I could have said nothing, could have, can't, you know, say it better than that. Uh, I think the other thing is interesting is in Nigeria's case, um, you know, it's you know a country that's been labeled by many numerous organizations as a country on the economic you know high you know you know very you know it's considered the most prosperous economic country in Africa, uh, it, uh, in the African continent, and it's you know done very well economically, but politically with a lot of its you know rankings on human rights and political freedoms is very low and of course uh should be noted with nigeria of course that of course there's no topic you know it doesn't have any influence on this but just for historic points uh that it's had a very you know rough uh history with its muslim and you know tr like traditional christian minority you know, majorities uh in the countries in south and north uh but yeah it's a very it's a country that's had a very rough history um since it was handed over by the british back to the people uh to run uh coups, military massacres. So yeah, it's a very, in, you know, the police brutality aspect, you know, we see a lot of it here in the US, UK, in Europe, but, you know, criticisms of the police's use of force. And there are legitimate concerns about that, but then we also see, you know, and, and it's very annoying to see the media not cover this as much. Um, use of forces in other countries where there really is no process to, you know, hold any of these officers accountable. They, can yeah. change the name of a unit, but they're still the same people on those units. But yeah, I mean, this is something that's happened in the past before, um, where mm -hmm. it's merely gone a uniform change is um, the way I've seen it described. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think that's the the key points to mm -hmm. leave off there. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. The, uh, uh, well, it's much a little earlier than usual for this segment. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think before we go into our loser of the week, since what I know a lot of you folks enjoy, uh, uh, just a quick you know, note, uh, two notes actually. First, uh, the elect president, American presidential election is only believed now about 10 days away. And if you'd like to watch some fun coverage, Tune into the Elections Daily live stream, I believe, starting at 7 o'clock on election night, which is a Tuesday, November 3rd. And for our international British audience, that would be midnight in the UK. Um, <laughs> Going to have to stay up for that one. Yeah. School is uh, school is a secondary thought uh, to the US election. <laughs> Always the fun of sixth form. And uh, secondly, uh, for all usual, please like, 
Uh, follow Elections Daily. Follow this cha channel on YouTube so you can get more Elections Daily content and see me and Adam. You know, who doesn't like to see you know, two nerds talking about international politics? Um, <laughs> but anyway, yes, and, and any other podcast services that you may enjoy on your leisure times. Yes, we get we have a lot of leisure time in this world, so just watch and see you know us you know analyzing depressing or happy things um <laughs> or complex things uh but anyway <laughs> we're gonna move to the loser of the week and adam has someone who has fallen straight from grace to uh to now well straight loser of the week well he's been loser of the year for a long time as well <laughs> right so yes uh, the man himself the former mayor of new york and the very center of the current uh, hunter biden uh, scandals in the uh, US. It is Rudy Giuliani mm -hmm. who has been facing um, some questions after a compromising scene in the new Borat mo uh, movie. Um, and for those who don't know, it is a uh, sort of mockumentary style where um, a, a character from uh, Kazakhstan goes around the United States and essentially make funds of, makes fun of politicians by setting them up in embarrassing interviews, which they believe to be real, but alas, are not. So uh, this is particularly um, interesting for being the loser of the week um, because um, it has uh, Giuliani, who is 76, um, going back to his, um, uh, I believe it is his hotel room with a, um, an actor who's playing Borat's daughter in this situation who's posing as a TV journalist. So in this interview, she is posing for a fake conservative news program in which the pair further retreat um, at her suggestion to drink to the bedroom of his ho hotel suite, which is rigged with concealed cameras. So after she removes her microphone, Giuliani can be seen um, on his bed um, fiddling, uh, which is a particular term this um, article I've seen and others use, um, with his untucked shirt and reaching into his trousers. Now you can make your own interpretations there. Um, and to which Borat comes rushing in at this time to describe that his daughter is only 15 and that she's too old for Giuliani, to which Giuliani rushes out of the scene and, um, you know, everyone laughs. Uh, but yes, this is a, a fascinating look to see how um, satire on TV is taking a figure who, I'm pr the, the, the time this film this was filmed, obviously it didn't have Giuliani at the very center of American politics because of his involvement with the, um, the Hunter Biden email scandal. Um, but to have this arriving now is, is, is fascinating, but also it shows a bit of his character. He's claiming that he was only tucking, tucking his shirt in um, in this very compromising scene. So yes, it's just a, a fascinating look um, into satire and how politicians um, really need to control themselves. Yeah, I mean, whether he was fiddling uh, or just touching <laughs> the mic or whatnot, I really don't want to get too involved. Um, it's always the fun saying, you should always research who you're talking with, always. That's always, I think, a good life lesson. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, that, and it really is, you know, you know, there's obviously the Hunter Biden stuff, you know, that may be true may be wrong i mean uh that's for others to decide i mean we're not touching that because that's not our purview of a uh, of news um but you know um people are free to uh you know uh do that and speaking of rudy this is just to extend this segment in a bit there was a controversy this week with uh, not with one rudolph giuliani of uh texting with a college teenager who was posing as ivanka trump now, yes, yes, it is funny, but the worst part of this is, and just to add on to Adam's loser of the week, is that media figures like Rachel Maddow and others thought this was actually real and retweeted it, only to be told by right-wing media, no, this is actually not true. It's an 18-year-old pretending to this, to which, of course, <laughs> um, the embarrassment was put on, you know, uh, these individuals' faces for falling the trap, and also Rudy as well. But yes, it, I mean, it's a, he's a fascinating character, um, <laughs> specifically to look at. And to be honest, I want to say this this fantastic element that I, I forgot to talk about in that. But um, he, he was talking about in, in an article, I believe with the New York Post, that um, he, he thought he would never have been, fooled, been able to have been fooled by um, some, a character like Borat. And he would have noticed it no matter what, um, which I think is a particularly funny element of him poking fun of, him, fun of himself. Um, but yes, yeah, that is a 
just to, sorry, this is just one of the most lighthearted um, loser of the week I think we have ever had, uh, particularly just because it is quite funny. Yeah, I mean, uh, Rudy isn't the same Rudy he was, you know, once was. That's the sad point here, but that's a different matter. <laughs> um, so on Alf Adam's point, my loser of the week, not as humorous, of course, uh, is the Czech elf minister uh, getting about to be fired for breaking his own lockdown, his own COVID rules. Always fun. Uh, Roman. That's, hmm? Sorry, I was thinking that's one of the, the third loser of the week who's been a politician breaking lockdown rules. <laughs> hey, I mean, uh, we have Dominic Cummings and the, uh, I'm already forgetting, Matt, Matt. Yeah, it was the Irish and some other Irish uh, ministers and so forth. Ah, yes, but, Irish um, ministers. You know, you've got to love politicians setting rules and not following them. But yes, uh, our friend <laughs> Roman Permal, Permal uh, is resigning this, is being forced out this week because, you know, uh, it was photographed, you know, uh, by a tabloid newspaper, uh, you know, in a restaurant that wasn't following his own recommendation. And his boss, the current prime minister of the Czech Republic, uh, Andrei Babis, uh, basically told him that he was fired and that uh, he wanted him gone. And now he's uh, following through on that recommendation, which is, you know, uh, loser of the week for suggesting health policies and then breaking them. Always fun. <laughs> wow, that is a, a slightly, well, I guess, slightly lighthearted um, note yeah. to, to leave this on. Um, yeah. But yes, I think... Just to, to summarize a bit of what we looked at in the uh, the news a little bit, it definitely does seem like um, that, you know, the key elements of, of what is important across the world being, you know, the ceasefire in Libya, which I think is crucial uh, for a civil war there, um, even an element of the Bolivian election, um, Israel-Sudan normalizing ties. These are key elements of the world that are constantly shifting the way in which it works and aren't really being looked at that by you know that much uh, so um i'm very glad to be able to have this platform so we can continue talking about these very crucial elements um to an audience so that they can uh, learn and develop off of it um but yeah yeah i think that's you know great points i mean you know we're trying to do a service that a lot of traditional media um unfortunately has turned a lot of a blind eye to and uh we thank you all uh you know we, a lot of you watch different times uh for watching us and listening to us and uh, you know uh, what comes in the next week will be fun to discuss uh, I do know um, just because it is on the agenda and because uh, we have some time left uh, in our allotted schedule to I'll ask Adam about a big upcoming event the US presidential election and his quick thoughts about it Adam that uh, very topical okay sure yeah. um, right so to briefly give my elements in this last six uh, minutes we have um, I think it will be a, a Biden victory. I'm very much a stickler for looking at the polls. Obviously, you know, it was a, a bit wrong to say that after what happened in Bolivia. Um, but in the somewhat reliable element of Bolivian polling, I think it's going to be something where Biden is able to, um, you know, win. Um, ultimately, because of elements like the the awful, in my opinion, uh, COVID-19 response by the United States and other elements such as people wanting a supposed return to normalcy, uh, this idea of civility in politics, um, mm -hmm. and uh, that general idea as well. I also think that the um, the idea of um, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters possibly breaking away from a character like Hillary Clinton isn't a factor in this at all. I feel like poll uh, polling has shown that um, Bernie support Sanders supporters are fairly uh, behind. Um, Biden and the fact Biden is just a far more popular candidate than someone like Hillary Clinton going up against a candidate which has now um, been, you know, uh, led a pretty uh, disastrous presidency. So yeah, that's just my broad opinions on it. Um, obviously, I will ultimately be held uh, to those words when it eventually comes to the election, but I will be watching it um, specifically the election daily daily coverage. Um, but I am looking forward to it actually. Um, I I. Did get to watch I, I kind of watched the 2016 election but i wasn't really paying that much attention because i was 12 so i had like a broad interest in politics but not that big of it uh, but now with my hyper focused mind where i'm caring about like senate candidates um i've got a few house um congressional races i'm watching as well um i think i'm gonna have a lot more fun with this election when watching it 
Yes, it's an interesting election in a very odd year. Uh, I, of course, uh, have, you know, my, I think it will be interesting to see what happens. Um, if the polling is correct, we very well may be seeing a Biden landslide of a wit of which we haven't seen in decades, even bigger than his Barack Obama's win in 2008, possibly. And uh, I think the impact of that, of course, is uh, what it means for the House and Senate, really. Uh, does he have a full trifecta? Does he have a tied Senate? What uh, happens with Mitch McConnell? And obviously the other big, you know, you know thing uh, that's been stressed in American politics is what will we finally do on the Supreme Court? Will we add, will we keep it, will we make term limits? All very fascinating to see where America in the next four years is heading and will be. And uh, if Trump does win re-election, uh, what happens to the polling industry? You know, are they dead? All fun, you know, questions to see uh, that. And I think you have a question uh, from Maya asking you, uh, uh, Adam, what house races are what races uh, what house races are you in, are you looking at? I think the the big one for me, um, and this is a very oddly specific one, is definitely going to be New Jersey's second congressional district. Um, the possibility of having a Kennedy replace the now gone um, Joe Kennedy the third of um, Massachusetts is going to be a fascinating element to look at and also to see how um, I, I always find party switching a fascinating element of um, uh, democracies in general um, and see how it plays off to those incumbents who do decide to um, switch parties so that will definitely be a key one for me um, and I mean in terms of other ones I, w I think Arkansas as well, uh, Montana's as well. Uh, yeah, Arkansas second district, mm -hmm. and then um, Montana as well. I think the, the the another element that I like looking towards besides party switches is um, candidates running in states that broadly don't do very well for that candidate. And mm -hmm. I know obviously it's because um, certain congressional districts concentrate in areas where you'll find that Democratic support or Republican support. Um, but yeah, I think those the, those two are going to be the main ones. Um, and specifically, just to say which Senate race I'm most looking mm -hmm. forward to is definitely Iowa. Um, I find rural, um, well, more rural style politicians fascinating. Um, and to have someone who sort of sells themselves as a, uh, a retail politician, um, just it's just a fascinating element to look at. Uh, so that would be my my key uh, watch of the night um, for the Senate as well as um, the House. Um, but do you have any interesting House uh, races or Senate races that you're particularly looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward on the Senate side. I think we both have the same Senate seat in mind. I think I'm really interested to see Iowa. Um, polling there has been really tight this week. Um, and that very well, well could be the Senate seat that determines the majority. Uh, if Democrats pick it up, that could be seat 51 if Republicans hold it. Um, it might be seat. It might be the seat that keeps them in the line. Don't, you know, get a 50-50 Senate or a 51-49 Republican Senate. I think it's yeah. that's a race I'm interested in looking at in the Senate. I mean, the other the other Senate race I'm kind of interested to look at is, um, in a sense, uh, might not be done that night. But what happens with the Georgia races? What's the margin? Do we have yeah. a runoff? Do we have two runoffs in January? Uh, you know, uh, that, that's what I mean. And in the House, um, I think what I'm interested in looking at is probably. Probably a one Minnesota seventh Colin Peterson seat uh, yeah. might be one of the few bright spots for Republicans on a really possible damn, damn bad night. Um, but the other seat I'm also interested in looking at is, um, um, you know, a lot of these you know so-called suburban seats that you know Republicans still hold that might be in danger of falling. And a seat like that I'm interested in seeing is Arizona six. Um, current incumbent is scandal prone, and it's an area that's changing. I think that's an interesting race. Uh, Another race you mentioned, Arkansas 2, is really going to be a fascinating one to watch. Um, I also think California's 25th, just because of um, the how tight it seems to be there for a, a Democrat who should typically be doing very well in this situation, but really falling behind there. Um, but yeah, I think that those are going to be interesting uh, to watch. And um, yeah, it, it is interesting to see that California, even though it's a good year for Dems, there are a lot of house races possibly with Dem incumbents that are really shaky on ground, which is fascinating. I mean, just as a final point, I don't want to overrun too much just talking about the US, but it's, it's the same with the Senate, really, because you're seeing um, candidates um, like, uh, I mean, you know, for example, um, North Carolina being very, very, or looking like it's going to be much closer than it would have been um, 
months ago. Um, you're seeing um, candidates in um, Michigan. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be as tight as people are expecting, but obviously, it's a race there which isn't looking the greatest. But you're seeing someone like um, Harrison in South Carolina doing much better than you'd ever expect from a Democrat in the region. So, yeah, um, I think that's um, a fascinating thing to look at uh, this election is just how well um, Democrats are going to be able to expand their base in um, states they never typically pick up. But yeah, that's um, that's all from me. Yes, and I think we've exhausted our time. Uh, and I want to say thank you to all who watch this show. Uh, it means a lot. Uh, and I thank Adam for always taking the time out of his very busy day to you know, be a co-host, <laughs> a very fun, friendly co-host. And uh, thank you all. We'll see you next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time or 10 uh, uh, British time. And uh, enjoy the next week. Stay safe and uh, keep on watching. <laughs> Yeah, see you. Have a great night, folks.